I failed to mention that uh, Jim and Millie um, were not able to be here today because Jim's sister, Judy, um, is in Beaumont Hospital. She lives, she lives right behind um, right behind Jim, and she has had diabetes for about seven months, and she hasn't told anybody up until now. It's gotten pretty bad, and so um, uh, she wasn't able to get up yesterday, and so they had to go um, try to take care of her. She has an infection in her leg, and infection has reached the bone, so some significant issues there. So let me just take some time here uh, before we start and just pray for them. We'll also pray for them again tonight in our service, but let's let's pray now for them. Lord, we do ask for your grace upon uh, Judy. Thank you for Jim and Millie and their love for you and their desire to see you honored even in this. We pray that you'd just help them as they make decisions on her behalf and and uh, even as she's kind of out of it right now, we just pray that you would give them grace. But also, we're thankful for the skill and the the ability of the nurses and doctors at Beaumont. And we're thankful that you can work through them to bring about healing. And Lord, we would love to see her be able to be restored from this and for this to be corrected fully. But ultimately, we desire for, for you to be honored in this situation and for for them to Jim and Millie to grow in their relationship with you and also for Judy to come closer to you. I'm not sure if she's a believer or not, but I do pray for her salvation if she is not. And if she is, that you would strengthen her faith. And uh, we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to turn to Leviticus this morning, chapter 1, Leviticus. Leviticus is the third volume of Moses' five-volume set called the Pentateuch, or the Law of Moses. And the word Leviticus means, very simply, that which pertains to, what do you think? The Levites, right? Leviticus. And um, so this is about the Levitical system. And when you actually get into the text, you're going to see very early on in verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, so speaking about Israel, verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering, verse 10, but if his offering, the word if is used throughout the text, and it's referring to people that are not us. It's referring to people who are long dead and the system that is long gone. And so of all the books to study in the Bible... Why this one? I mean, is there really anything helpful in a book that was written for some other group of people? Let's be honest. How many of us look forward to reading this book when we read through our Bible? Further, how many of us actually go to this book to find out God's mind on various situations? When we're looking for God's wisdom on a certain uh, a doctrine or practice that we're trying to think through how often do we actually go to the book of Leviticus? You can easily just discard this whole this whole book. And can I suggest that the fact that we find little or no value in a book like this is an indication of our nearsighted approach of scripture. Let me explain. 
I think that we, and when I say we, I mean me as well, that, that I treat Leviticus and other books in the same way that you often do. I think we have been unhelpfully trained to treat the Bible like it was written directly to us and only to us. This is my little spiritual help book. And what I mean by that is that, that when we read this text of Scripture, we think that every single passage was designed specifically for me, for you and me. It's the means by which I can be helped. It's the means by which I can reach full actualization. You know, that my highest pinnacle of being, the, the, the Bible is just that little stepping stone that I need, that, that little salve I need for, for any problem that ails me. And so when we come to a story like, for example, David and Goliath, instead of understanding the story for what it means and what the authors originally intended, we see the story of David and Goliath as a story about how I can defeat the giants in my life. And so here's how David defeated his giant. We all have our own giants. For some of us, it's our mortgage payment. For some of us, it's our spouse. For some of us, it's our job. For David, it just happened to be a real giant, right? And so this is what the story is about. But that's not what the story is about. It's not about how I can defeat the giants in my life. It's about how God's name was being defamed through this, through this, uh, through this man from Gath, this Philistine. And David wanted to stand up for the sake of God's name. The story wasn't about David. It wasn't about Goliath. It was about God and about God's honor. And in fact, that's what the entire Bible is about. Now, secondarily, it's about humans and about God's relationship with humans. But primarily, it's not about you and me. This is His story. It's the story about how He created the universe and everything in it. It's the story about how He was defied by Adam and Eve. It's the story of how He wants to come and live among His people and be their God. And He wants them to be His. It's a story about how He made reconciliation through His Son. It's a story about how He will bring everything under the rule of His Son. See, the Bible primarily is not about you and me. No part of the Bible has your first and the last name in it as if you're the direct recipient. No part of the Bible has our church's name mentioned in it one time. And so many times when we come to Scripture, we're actually reading someone else's mail, aren't we? And even if it, even if it were written directly to our church, it's still not about us primarily. If we were Colossae, for example, the church at Colossae, it's not about the church of Colossae. It's about God and Him working through them and how He demands their, their service. And so when we think that we're the primary recipients or the primary topic of the Scriptures, it, it changes, it affects how we look at the Scriptures. And it affects how we look at individual texts. 
This is what I would call a self-centered approach to studying the Bible. A self-centered method. And this is the method that I learned growing up. Not that God was unimportant, but but often it was that I was that it, this was kind of my little self-help book and the way that it worked was like this. And and by the way, this is taught by godly Christians, I think. Well-meaning people. And so for years, I would read the Bible like I was waiting for something, some spark of energy or, or, or you know, the liver shiver. And just really feel it like that's for me. And so if I can't find it, then, then I just got to keep reading. Then once I feel it, once something happens, then, then I must have, I, I must, it must have helped me. Okay, so, so for example, I'll just give you a personal illustration. Exodus fourteen fourteen. I I was just happened to be reading through that when I was a teenager, and I was also, I think I might have told you this story before. I was also deciding whether or not I should be in the church choir. And the verse that I came to is Exodus fourteen fourteen. The Lord will fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Okay, so this is kind of my way of, of um, you know, this was the little conflict that I had going on, on in my mind. You know, you could have a conflict with your credit card company and come to a verse like that, the Lord will fight for you. So I don't really need to put up this battle anymore. Because the Lord will fight for you. Well, is that really what Moses was talking about? Was he talking about a choir? Was he talking about fighting with our credit card company or standing up for the sake of, uh, of something like that? No. It was about the people of Israel and about God fighting for them. Now, certainly, that doesn't mean that Scripture is pointless for us. Because the Bible is not primarily about us, hey, don't go off to that other extreme. But, but I think this kind of thing, this, this idea where we're looking for something to just strike us, that because the Scriptures are for us and us only, I think that's dangerous because when we come to books like Leviticus, we're waiting for the text to speak to our situation. And because the Bible's about me, we go chapter after chapter into Leviticus waiting for some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling, and we don't get it. And so we give up on it. We see the whole book as dry and boring. 27 chapters of Levitical law. And I think it's because we've taken too self-centered of, a, of an approach to the Scriptures. We've lost the forest by looking at the trees. We need to take a step back and get a broader perspective. And I, so I think that the most helpful thing we can do is take a few steps back and think about how we ought to stutter, study Scriptures properly. Think about the importance of this book. That requires that we have a big picture perspective. So, I want us to see the value of this book before we get into this. And this is what today is designed to do. And I'm going to show you what I think God's trying to teach us through this book as a whole. And then we'll take sections of it over the next 10 or 11 weeks to go through the entire book. So let me offer you several reasons why I think our church needs to study this book. 
several reasons why our church ought to study this book as we are going to do. Number one, and most obviously, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, and for instruction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped for every good work that God calls you to do? Do you think the Bible is important for that? Do you think that all of the Bible is important for that? Okay, so if you've answered yes to all those things, then let me ask you this, and this is a little bit harder one. Do you think Leviticus is important to you being thoroughly equipped for every good work? And if you believe Second. Timothy 3:16 and 17 you have to answer yes because all scripture all scripture including books like Leviticus are profitable and God wants to see the profit in it so here's here's kind of the 30,000 foot view why study Leviticus and the answer is because it's part of all of scripture it's part it's one small part of all scripture which all the Scripture is profitable for us, so let's study it together. Number two, why, why, why should we study this book? What value is there? Leviticus provides the background of the historical narrative. Okay, so very simply, historical background. It provides the background of the historical narrative for how the people of Israel went from Egypt to Mount Sinai, which is where they are when this takes place, to the promised land. Okay, so if we didn't have the book of Leviticus, we would actually be missing a huge piece of the puzzle to understand historically how they got from Mount Sinai to all these Levitical things that they're practicing throughout the rest of the the Old Testament, um, even up to the promised land. So we'll talk about the timing of, of that later, exactly when this happens in history. Number three. If we're going to understand the New Testament accurately, we need to understand this critical book. Okay, so it, it, it helps us in our understanding of the New Testament. That would be number three. Let me just give you a few examples. I won't have you turn there because we're going to be looking at a lot of passages here in Leviticus in just a few minutes. But you can jot these down. First John 2, 2. Christ Himself is the propitiation, or the NIV says the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. So, Christ is the atoning sacrifice. What information do we have apart from the book of Leviticus to understand what atonement really is? When we come to this book, you're going to see what atonement is. And if Christ is our atonement, And why is that so important? Why do we need atonement? And so on. So it helps provide the background. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Where does that idea come from? 1 Peter 1.15-16 You shall be holy, God says, because what? Because I am holy. You know what this book is all about? It's about God's holiness. It's about God's holiness and His demand for His people to be 
holy, set apart for His purposes. So we have all these New Testament concepts that we think about and sometimes just automatically maybe understand because we've been in church for a long time, but where do they come from? And perhaps to help refine our understanding, to help shape us a little bit better, we need to, un- we need to understand this book of Leviticus. Number four. Leviticus is a book about God's holiness. Why study this book? Because it's about God's holiness. The word holy is used 90 times in these 27 chapters. And so we learn something about God that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, but we see it very clearly in this book that God is very concerned about us understanding His holiness. That we understand that He can't just be approached flippantly, unadvisedly, but very soberly and reverently. That's what this book helps us to see. Number five, not only about God's holiness, but but our sinfulness. The book about our sinfulness. So you're going to find some great value in this book by just studying it with our church. Can you relate to human sinfulness? Can you relate to these people who had a barrier between man and God? See, what we tend to do is look at the, the all the details. You know, this offering, that offering, that those don't apply to me. But what we ought to do is take a, a few steps back again and take a look and see that I'm sinful just like they are. There's a barrier between me and God just like there was with them. And what has God done to, to bridge that gap with them? We'll see what happens. With us, we need to understand what happens and, and we need to see how that's changed, why it's changed. Leviticus helps us to see our own sinfulness. Number six, Leviticus shows us that we must come to God on His terms. We live in a world that doesn't mind God so much. You know, God's okay as long as as they, the world, can come come to God on his on their own terms, right? You've heard the phrase come as you are. You know, it doesn't matter how you come to God, God'll accept you. You know why that is? Because God is a big, loving, heavenly grandfather like figure. And He doesn't really care about your little sins. Instead, He loves you as a little creature. He just loves to hold you dear because He's made you. And what we ignore is books like Leviticus that show that our sinfulness creates a very clear barrier between us and God. And we have to come to Him on His terms. It's about what God wants. You know, our, our world tells us, and even sometimes in some of our churches, we say things like, you know, we're happy to have God tell us what He wants us to do as long as it can be given to us in an easy, convenient, three-step process. And if you can just tell me the three things I need to do, this is what often happens when people come to, to, to various pastors for counseling. You know, they say, well, just give me the three things I need to do and and I'll do it. But, you know, sinfulness permeates all of our lives, doesn't it? And it's often not that simple. And the fact that this book is 27 chapters gives us an indication of that. It's not just, you know what? 
I've sinned, so here you go. God, I'll give you what you want. Instead, it's very, it's very detailed. God demands specific things. Friends, this book helps us to show how serious God is about our sin and that He demands a specific way that He is to be approached. But this book should not leave you in great despair. You should come away with great great joy knowing that, number seven, Leviticus shows us that God desires to be with His people, to live with His people. Now this is going to be amazing to you when you see this in the book. Because it is true that our sinfulness does create a barrier between us and God, but the amazing thing with God is that He desires still to live among His people, His redeemed people. But there's going to have to be things that have to take place before that. So God desires to have a relationship with His people. And that's really a point that's part of the larger narrative of Scripture, that God desires to be our God and He desires for us to be His people. And that's ultimately what what we see in Revelation when Adam defied God and broke that fellowship with Him. And that's in Genesis. And then in Revelation, we see that God restores that with those whom He has called His children, whom He has adopted as sons and daughters, and now He can live among them. That's what the whole new heaven and new earth is all about, right? So that God can come down and live among us. And He will be our God and we will be His people. And so Leviticus shows that. Number eight, why study this book? Because Leviticus is a book that provides the background for our access to God. Because we are sinful and God is holy, Something has to be done about our sin, this veil that has come between us and God. And the specific thing that we need is is this remedy. What is the remedy for our sin? So what you're going to find in Leviticus is a lot of blood, a lot of death. We don't think about this a whole lot in our culture. When you sit down to eat your steak and potatoes, you don't think about the fact that in order for you to live, in order for you to have sustenance so that you can live, something had to die. And we're going to see this in Leviticus, not with our eating necessarily, but in order for us to live eternally, something has to die in our place. Something has, some blood has to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness of sin. And we lose sight of that because I've never seen a live sacrifice. I don't cut up my own animals before you know, we eat. They're all cut up for me. And we don't have to offer these sacrifices now. So, so sometimes we lose sight of the fact of all the death that has to happen because of our sin. And so Leviticus is a book that helps provide the background for our access to God. For for the people of Israel, it was this comprehensive Levitical system. And for them, they were fully aware that animals had to die in order for them to live spiritually. 
they had to sacrifice these animals. So those are just eight reasons why we should study this book. I hope you see the value in that. In order for us to now understand this book properly, I think we need to understand it in its historical and cultural context. So let me now turn to some introductory material and just walk you through some of these things and then we'll look at the the text itself. Okay, so first the author. Moses, of course, we understand, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now Moses doesn't say that he wrote this book and nowhere in the text do we have a clear reference that Moses wrote it. However, at the very beginning, we see chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called to Moses. So it would make sense that Moses did write it. And, in fact, we know from the rest of Scripture that the law of Moses, the five books of Moses, were written by Moses. We know that even from the mouth of our Lord in Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 26, and also Joshua 8:31, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. So people historically, believers historically, have understood that Moses wrote the first five books, and we have no reason to disagree with that understanding. He wrote this book. The recipients, pretty easy, pretty easy or obvious. It was directed at the people of Israel. We're reading essentially someone else's mail here. The date is about one year after the Exodus. Turn to Exodus 40. Let me show you. They had come out, had been delivered from the oppression of the Egyptians in Exodus. And then in Exodus 40, notice, they set up a tabernacle in the wilderness. And this is the very first time that they set the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, up. Chapter 40, verse 2. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And then verse 17. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So the, what I'm trying to show you is the date or the, the time of this year. It was the first day of the first month following the Exodus. That's when the temple or the tabernacle was erected. Now turn to Numbers 1.1. So Numbers is right after Leviticus. Numbers 1.1. And we saw the first month was when the, the temple, the tabernacle, excuse me, was erected. And now, Numbers 1.1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year. So, Numbers is about their journey beginning, really. That they actually had set up the tent, the tabernacle, and now, in Numbers, they actually start heading toward the promised land. Now, it takes them a really long time to get there, but that's what Numbers is about. So, between that time, the first day of the first month, and the the first day of the second month, is when Leviticus is written, likely. At least the events of it, Uh, are taking place during this time. So that gives us a little bit of a window. They're one year away from having been delivered from Egypt's oppression. And they're a long way away from the Promised Land. So this is very much at the front end of their journey in the wilderness. So, now I want to turn to an outline for the book an outline for the book. And and there are basically four main points that the book tries to portray in in my understanding. Four main 
points that we're going to see. Number one, we can't come to the Holy God apart from a, from a proper sacrifice. Chapters 1 to 7. We can't come to the Holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. Now, each of these points are going to begin with we can't come to a Holy God. So once you get that part down, you can just kind of use the ditto marks when you get down these last, uh, these last three. We can't come to the Holy God apart from a proper sacrifice. Chapters 1 to 7. Turn to chapter 4, and I'll just give you an idea of what this looks like. Chapters 1 through 7 are all about the sacrifices. We have all these different offerings. The burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. What are all these things and what are their purposes? Well, we're going to talk about them specifically next week when we get into the study of the first six chapters. But but what I want to show you is maybe a a unifying theme of all these sacrifices. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. Towards the end of the verse, it says, So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Remember 1 John 2, 2? Christ is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice this. One of the purposes of the sacrifice the unifying purpose, probably the main purpose of these sacrifices, is to make atonement so that they can have forgiveness. Skip down to verse 26. Okay, talking about how to deal with unintentional sin. At the end of the verse it says, when you're giving a sin offering, it says, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Verse 35. Uh, actually, verse 31. The end of the verse, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. Verse 35, the end of the verse, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to this sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Five six, Chapter 5, verse 6. Here's the guilt offering. The end of the verse, So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Verse 10. Middle of the verse, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven. And and I could just keep taking you through verse after verse. Turn to chapter 6, verse 6. You see here this guilt offering again, but a fuller explanation. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. So you start to get the sense that we can't just come to God on our own. We can't come to God apart from a proper sacrifice. It's amazing that Moses doesn't say, okay, let me, let me show you here. Here's how the priesthood gets set up. We'll talk about that first. Then we'll talk about some other things, and then eventually we'll show you what you need to do. Instead, the book just starts right out. Here's what God said about sacrifices. And so the people reading this for the first time, or maybe multiple times, would think, I can't come to God apart from a proper sacrifice. He demands a proper sacrifice. Now there's a transition beginning in 
chapter 6, verse 8, to the end of chapter 7, shows the priest's part. And we haven't even been introduced to the priests yet. But now we find out that we just can't go and give sacrifices to God, but we have to do it through a priest. And then in chapters 8 through 10, we have the second point that I think that the book is trying to show. And that is this. We can come to the Holy God apart from a proper mediator. We can come to the Holy God apart from a proper mediator. Chapters 8 through 10. So we can't come to the Holy God apart from a proper sacrifice, chapters 1 through 7, and then we can't come apart from a proper mediator, a proper priest, chapters 8 through 10. So in chapter 8, God sets apart the Levites, this specific group of people who will take care in these priestly duties. And then God sets up a proper priest in chapter 9. And then here's kind of the culmination of all of this. Look at the end of chapter 9, verse 22. Here's Aaron after he has been uh, has become priest. He lifted up his hands toward the people, verse 22, and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, here you go, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Remember, we said, I said earlier that God wants to dwell among His people. Here's God taking a step toward His sinful people. I'm making a way so that I can come to you and live among you. And here's a clear expression of it. When you offer up these sacrifices through a proper mediator, I'm going to come and dwell among you. And His glory fills up the tabernacle and fire comes down and burns up the offerings and the people praise God. They fall on their faces in worship to God. We can't come to the Holy God apart from a proper priest or a proper mediator. Number three. The third thing that I think the book is trying to show us that Moses is trying to show us is that we can't come to the Holy God apart from ritual holiness. We can't come to the Holy God apart from ritual holiness. Chapters 11 through 16. In chapter 11, Moses takes the entire chapter to talk about proper eating. Notice in verses 43 through 45 the reason behind why God can demand that they eat a certain type of food. Why can God demand that of them? Look at verse 43. Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm. And he had already talked about what those are. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you become unclean. For, so why can God tell us what we can eat? For, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. 
For I am the Lord who brought you up out from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Why can God demand that they eat a certain type of food? That they be set apart in their eating? And the answer comes in verse 45. God says, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. Do I not have your best interests in mind? Did you forget so quickly how I am here for your good and for my glory? So because of that, you just need to trust me on this food thing. You may not see why it's important for you to eat this food that I'm demanding of you, people of Israel. But you need to trust me. In chapters 12-15, through 15, God demands holiness through cleanness. Okay, he does it through proper eating in chapter 11, and then through cleanness. Here we see in these chapters that people didn't just need atonement for their sins. And this is going to be strange for us, and we're going to have to see how this applies in our lives, but I'm just going to put it out there for you right now, that they needed atonement for their uncleanness. Look at verse 20 of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 20. The priest shall offer up the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him. Do you remember in the first six chapters what it would say? Shall make atonement for him and he shall have what? Forgiveness of sins. But here it says something different. And he will be clean. And then look at verse 31. The end of the verse. So the priest shall make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the one to be cleansed. And then verse 53. The end of the verse, so he shall make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. So we have all sorts of strange things that they have to become clean for, and we'll talk about those as we get to those chapters. But God, the point is, is that God demands ritual holiness. But that's not enough. And that's why chapters 17 through 27 is the fourth thing that God shows in this book, and that is that we can't come to the holy God apart from personal holiness. Apart from personal holiness. We can't come to to the holy God apart from personal holiness. Chapter 17, God demands atonement be made for our sins. And so we're going to look at what atonement really is. Chapters 18 through 20, God demands holiness through morality, through being moral. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And what I want you to notice is that phrase, I am the Lord. And if you were to read just from chapter 17 to the end of the book, you're going to find the phrase, I am the Lord, 47 times. Only two times in the first 17 chapters and 47 times in the last part of the book. The motivation for the people of Israel was that He is the Lord, and so do what I tell you. I demand personal holiness, personal morality. And what you're going to find strange in these last chapters, chapters 17 through 27, is that there is a mixture 
of moral laws, which we kind of park on, and along with civil and ceremonial laws. So let me just give you an example. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. We can find some moral help in a lot of these verses. So we look through chapter 19. We come to verse 11. You shall not steal, nor deal, deal, deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Hey, we, we can learn from that. You shall not swear falsely by my name. So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. There's lots of great application for that, right? Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. Okay, I get it. Verse 15, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial, partial to the poor. Verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Verse 19, you're to keep my statutes. And then look at this. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Okay, confession time. Who of you is wearing a garment that has more than one fabric in it? Okay? Uh, so, so how does this apply to us? See, that's, that's the danger of looking at the text as if it's only directed at us. So we need to understand why is God telling, mixing in both these moral laws, which we can gain something from, and then these civil and ceremonial laws, which, what is that all about? See, we can't just pick and choose what's appropriate for us. We need to understand these laws in their context. And the point I think that that God just quickly moves from these moral laws, you know, don't rob your neighbor, and then these civil laws and ceremonial laws like don't mix fabrics and don't breed together two different kinds of cattle and, and things like that. I think the point is that I am God and I'm in charge of every area of your life. I rule all of your life. And so here are here's a detailed way, Israel, you can understand that I rule it all. Okay, and so when we see that, now we can start to draw application for ourselves, can't we? Now we step back and say, well, God may not have told me exactly how I should eat, right? He's given us permission to eat meat now, by the way. And we can mix fabrics now. So, But He does have rule, doesn't He, over all areas of our lives. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do it all to the glory of God because He rules it all. Alright? So, so God demands personal holiness. Now let me suggest a theme for the book and then we'll conclude by looking at a difference between holiness and cleanness. The theme for the book, based on what I can tell, is that the holy God cannot be approached apart from proper worship. You see how each of those four points fit into that main point, the main theme? The holy God cannot be approached apart from proper worship. We are estranged from God because of our sin. But God wants to dwell among His people. And so He's made a way for himself and us to dwell together. Leviticus shows us that we can't come to God on our own. God has to provide a way. For them, it was a very specific, comprehensive Levitical system that they had to follow if they wanted to be in a right relationship with God. And I hope you see that this system would cause the people to long for a better way. And you know, as Christians... 
we have a new and living way. Hebrews 10, verse 19 says, We can enter the holy place now by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way. We have the better way, folks. We have the better way. The holy God cannot be apart, approached apart from proper worship. I'm going to save our discussion on the difference between holiness and cleanness for another time, just for sake of time this morning. But are you starting to see the value of this important Old Testament book? Let me raise one final question that you may or may not have thought of yourself regarding this book. Why give instructions on sacrifices if sacrifices were already being made in Genesis and Exodus? Have you ever considered that? Did did you ever consider that Abraham was already making sacrifices? And that Job was making sacrifices on behalf of his family? Why now give the explanation? I think the point is, is that God had them begin doing that long time ago, now becomes more detailed in it, and starts to give them reason for it. And what it does is it starts to open up their eyes to what God is doing. It gives new meaning and purpose to God's plan of redemption. And that's what God did for us. You know, sometimes we go through the Christian life and and we just start obeying Him. And that's a good thing. And we don't know why often. And that's good because sometimes we never will know why. But, but other times we come later on in life and as the Scriptures start to enlighten us through the Spirit, we start to open our eyes to see what... Now I understand, God, why You told me to stay away from that sin. And it starts to brighten our focus, and I think that's why sacrifices are done a long time ago. Now God starts to give purpose to them. Not that He didn't have purpose, but now He starts to show them the purpose of them. So... When we come to the end of Leviticus, what we should see is that coming to God, approaching God, is not a small thing. And our holiness, our sanctification requires that we put in great, a great amount of reflection to our worship to God. That we just don't kind of just stumble into a service and go, okay, this is on my schedule and now... I'm going to do something. This is not what I do on Sunday. I I go to church. But rather, we reflect on it. What is God intending to do in this service? What does He want from me? What what should I be doing leading up to this service of worship to Him? And and this this time of of, uh, serving other believers. What about preparation or participation? What should I be doing in service of worship to God? And what we should also understand is that we can't do this this act of worship that God desires on our own. Certainly, we should be worshiping God on our own, but the real worship that God desires in a corporate setting, we can't do it alone, can we? Think about the Levitical system. Could one person be made right with God on his own if he just brought the proper sacrifices? No. He had to have the sacrifice. He had to have the system. It had to be done with the priests and everything. And so I think that corporate idea 
comes through even in our day, even though we're not under Levitical law. And it helps us to show that, that we're in this together. And that God rules over all areas of our lives and so that we can't compartmentalize things. So we'll talk about that as we go. But, but sometimes what we do is say, well, here's my worship of God over here. Now, get back to work, family. Well, God is saying, I rule all of this. I rule it all. And so I demand that you do it my way in all areas of life. You see, God wants to have a relationship with us, but because of our sin, we can't come to Him apart from His prescribed means. Let's pray. Lord, it is our privilege to have the completed Word in our possession, in our language, in an understandable way. Lord, we don't need a ton of training to understand the very simple truths that come from Your Word. Certainly there is some complexity, but it is a cohesive unit. Your Word agrees with itself. It does not contradict. And sometimes we don't mind looking at texts of Scripture, but when they don't seem to apply to us, it's difficult. And so we're grateful that You have left for us this book of Leviticus. And we want to understand it as best as we can so that we can have a better understanding of You and of our sin and of our access to You. And most importantly, because of our great Savior who has paved the way for us, who has broken that veil, has torn that veil in and has provided the access to You. And so we're thankful for our Savior. And Lord, we want You to have control of every area of our life. We don't want to hold anything back. So we pray that You'd help us in this. In Jesus' name, Amen.